You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with John Maida, who is the Senior Vice President and Chief Experience Officer at Everbridge, which I think the logo there is safety as a service. Is that the... Save lives and keep organizations running. Okay. Well, we'll have to talk about that. But also, you are the author of a couple books. This one is called The Laws of Simplicity, which is a classic. It's been around for 15 years or so, and I think I sometimes dip back into it for inspiration. And there's another book I unfortunately only have the the Kindle version, so I can't hold it up, and that's How how to Speak Machine. And so we can talk about that. Uh, But but also, John has been um, at MIT, at the Media Lab, got an MBA at one point in your career. We'll have to talk about that. Also, we're at RISD and at Kleiner Perkins, among other uh, stops along your career. It's almost as if you had designed this career trajectory. Welcome, John. Glad to be here. Let's get started. I can't wait to see what questions you're going to ask me. (laughs) Well, I want to go back to this book right here, which is The Laws of of Simplicity. And I think at the time when you wrote this, I think you were sort of a um, curator of the temple of design (laughs) that you reference in your book. And there's a lot of inspirational stories about how your childhood and your education had uh, really given you a focus on design and the importance of design in, in, in life. Uh, and then later on, I think you, you recount how you were seen as a traitor to the design community because you said design is is no longer important. Of course, you didn't say that, but that you were quoted as, as saying. I didn't say that, but that's a power of being clickbait. Yeah. But when you look back on this book, if you were to rewrite this book today, would you write it exactly the same way? What would Oh, I would actually have no time to write it. I think I wrote that book when I was in the ivory tower. And that's what you do. You write on ivory <laughs> a lot of time. But uh, I could never do that now. And I think it was probably a lot of work. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned at the beginning of the book is that it's a simple book. It's a short book. And simplicity actually takes more work than sometimes more work than complexity. Huh. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that Laws of Simplicity book, well, interesting to me at least, I wrote it in this maybe less than six months in my most recent book took six years to make. So it's a real difference because I was so busy the last six years. And maybe I think when I was in the ivory tower, I just had more time to think and it was built on some years of thinking, but still it was a different time. Yeah. Well, I think in today's culture, we've got Marie Kondo going around telling everybody that they need to uh, simplify. And <laughs> is she still a thing? I, I think so. I think so. I, I, people still make reference to that. And of course, uh, that's a message that is, is uh, I wouldn't even say it's a watered down version of your message. It's not your message at all. Yeah. Well, it's, I think even the laws of simplicity, it wasn't just about simplicity. It was about complexity. It's like you have to have both to really feel the other pole. It's like north-south magnets. It's like you need opposites to do something. So um, when I think at the time, I had a lot of abstract thoughts about the history of design, the history of computation, the emergence of how business was adopting what we call digital transformation. I think at MIT, we were at the forefront of it and singing in the 80s, 90s, and 
But then digital transformation happened. You're in Silicon Valley. It happened without the need to write books about it, just build companies. It's a good thing. Right. Well, I'm also spending a lot of time with companies that are trying to undergo what they call digital transformation. And part of that is indeed stripping away a lot of the complex decision-making, stripping away a lot of the legacy systems, right? Replacing things that are very clunky and kludgy with things that, that, that operate very smoothly, uh, creating an experience for users that's simple and, and clean, creating an experience for employees that's simple and clean. But the resulting entity and organization that you have is quite complex. I mean, it, it's extraordinarily difficult for companies to go through this digital transformation. Isn't it? I mean, I think that every framework, every HBR, McKinsey, you insert whatever fancy name, it misses the point that book. Remember the popular one, like Who Moved My Cheese? Like when you're moving it at the speed of Moore's Law, people get really upset. <laughs> it's like... There should be like a Who Moved My Cheese Moore's Law edition. That'd be interesting. Well, I mean, you're, you've been in the business world now for quite some time you, you, after you left RISD. Yeah. And have it, are there things that you can take from your experience in the educational world? Oh, yeah. People ask me that all the time. Well, when I was running RISD, I was CEO running the thing. I had the P&L of a nonprofit. The financial crisis happened and had to rebuild the operational machine. Everything I MBA'd was useless. <laughs> so I had to figure it out the hard way, a lot of tears, literally. And from that moment, I was really interested in operations. I was like, wow, okay. And I've sort of been bringing that to different circles, but I, everyone asks me like, well, it must be so different than the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. It's quite similar, really. I think that Everyone has feelings and everyone's done something. And organizations are people. And all you really have in, in the education world is people. So you kind of have to be understanding of people. I think that skill I use all the time. Yeah, but going from say RISD to Kleiner Perkins, universities are these places which change very slowly and things organizationally and, and even in terms of content, they change at a glacial speed. And then you move into a world where you have to make these very quick decisions about, about companies that are being born and dying in a very rapid cycle. I think of academic administrators and, and venture capitalists as being almost polar opposites in terms of their approaches to things. It depends which academic administrator you are. If you look me up, I was not liked by many people for what I did. <laughs> I mean, I did things like a month before I arrived, I changed all the computing systems over to Google Apps, which at the time was still cutting edge. No one did that. And I did it like a month before I arrived. And understandably, people weren't happy. But I noticed that the in-place email system, you lost 11 mails out of like 100. And that's not a usable communication system. There was no ability to quickly spin up sites, collaborate, etc. So I transformed the place that the rate that people I think expected me to but i i do realize that if i were to do it over again could i do that now it took a lot out of me and i think that leaders don't change things so quickly because it can hurt it can hurt you it can hurt other people it pays a toll right so let me i'm going to circle back to your upbringing because i think you, you had kind of a unique upbringing where you kind of bounced back and forth between japan and, and the u.s and 
your account in the book about how you learned to appreciate the kind of animism of all objects and how every object was uh, potentially a, a living, breathing thing, metaphorically at least. How did that influence your, your view of both design and, and later technology? It was a big influence. I think that it, it makes you a good conservationist of physical resources because you treat them more carefully. You have to be more considered. You can't be as wasteful. If you think about the whole like Con Murray stuff, I mean, she's basically talking about praying to objects, which is animism. I think that people who care about physical materials tend to treat them differently. Think of like, if you went to a really good Japanese restaurant, it's the materials are selected extremely well, which if you think of, if you're from the Berkeley area, that's at the Shea Panis, is that right? That amazing temple. I mean, that whole doctrine is like materials, right? So I think the French and the Japanese both understood that you have to make good food, you need good raw materials. So you are kind of animistic. I would argue that if you're like a French chef, you mess with my carrots, I'm coming after you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> They're like my babies. Well, that's interesting. You know how like sometimes people who create things do literally think of them as their babies. It's kind of an animism, really. It's a respect for something that is inanimate as if it were living. Yeah, but it seems like, as you mentioned in your other book, How to Speak Machine, that people aren't really as concerned now about the kind of hard machines. It's really the soft machines are replacing the, the hard machines, that, that it's really the experiences that people are, uh, at least design professionals are focused on, much, much less than the, the physical devices and, and things that we interact with. Is there a dichotomy there, or is, that, is there a continuity in terms of... I don't really know. I mean, that's, that's something I'm kind of wondering a lot about, because I work on a lot on supply chain risk now in my job. And there's two kinds of supply chain risk. I believe there's physical supply chain risk and digital supply chain risk. And a physical supply chain, we know what that looks like in our head or optimized with Amazon robots, et cetera. But a digital supply chain is like you're building on top of Asia and Asia goes down. Whoa, what do you do? Or you've built your organization's communication system on Slack and that goes down. Like, what do you do? So I think that's a kind of invisible supply chain that we're just starting to understand in business. And they're very similar. It's just unless you're cyber equipped, you can't see the, the kind of like analogy that you could make between the two worlds. Because one's invisible. It'll make national news if, you're, if you have a giant truck of like soup and it falls all over the highway. And they'll play that like on every network for at least a week or something. But when Asia goes down, it's like, oh, oh well. But that's like a gazillion trucks dropping tomato soup all over the place. I find that interesting. That hasn't happened yet. Right. Well, I think that w when I was reading the second book, How to Speak Machine, and I, I thought of this, I think in the book you try to draw some distinctions between kind of the world of computation and, and the world of design. But I think in the background, at least as I infer from your writings that you've always thought of this as something of a continuum and you've always, your thinking about design was informed by your familiarity with computation. So I think that because I was already digitally aware and it became more physically aware, 
I think that just balancing that and then bringing some of that thinking into the business world is what has helped me distinguish what I'm doing because I understand those worlds in a kind of spiritual way. Maybe this animistic thing is what I've been caring for so long. I didn't know that. It's like a therapy session with Greg LeBlanc. So I get it. Well, I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that because coders always talk about kind of the the elegance of, of their code, right? And I think outsiders really don't know what they're talking about. Oh, yeah. I, I remember like if you're in computer science, the name Donald Knuth, he's like the Pope of computer science. And I don't mean that in any religious way, et cetera, but it means he's the bomb. And he was at MIT visiting and he came to see me. And I was like, why, why do you want to see me? <laughs> I was like, maybe you came to the wrong office. Are you looking for somebody else? And he's like, oh, I want to talk to you. Like, Why do you want to talk to me? So this, I remember that day vividly. Like, this is weird. Donald Knuth is here. And then we went to a lecture together in the EE Computer Science Building. And he was just leaning over to me and saying, like, well, you know, I mean, beautiful code, beautiful machines. And I knew exactly what he was saying, but I know that most people can't understand it unless you like math. Because the whole like Gudel Escherbach or that whole world of math, beauty, and is a kind of pure elegance of things that you cannot see with your eyes, but you can see with your mind. And I think code is a similar construct. But what's interesting is that making things out of math, it takes a lot of training. But making things out of code takes a lot less training, especially these days. So everyone's kind of sculpting out of a invisible metamagical material, but they think it's just code, nerdy code. But it's very close to what Knuth understood, a beautiful machine, an efficient machine, such elegance, such grace, but you cannot see it operate. You have to see it in your head and imagine it, like a math thing too. Well, so I, I work with a a startup that does software engineering education. And they talk about how one way to teach people how to code is to just, you know, force them to kind of memorize different sequences of code and then have them regurgitate it and, and do it. And there's a one right way to do it. Another a very different way of teaching them is to have them design the solution independently and understand the nature of the problem, right? And that's kind of more like art, right? Well, that's actually how computer science in this and that, how the AP computer science test changed to be less biased towards boys when it was switched from writing, write the code to let's solve this problem and write the code to solve the problem. So I can imagine that not being a g- purely a gender issue, but it could be generalizable to any population that, hey, I don't want to like build an erector set, right? I don't want to build with the erector set. What are you building? Oh, I want to build that. How do you build? Well, I mean, that's really more of an engineering approach, right? I mean, you're, you've got a problem to solve and solve the problem. Yeah, you would think, but I mean, I disagree partially because like, think about how we all had to learn calculus and everyone knows that you don't need calculus. You should have learned probability. But I learned all that calculus and it was meant to be a gateway to knowing something. So I kind of think that usually when we have foundational knowledge transfer, we don't start from the problem. We assume you need to like know how to draw with your mind or compute. 
and only until you get to the higher levels, right? Do you start to get to work on problems? But I think the new generation starts reverse now. Yeah, I think it's now it's like start by solving small problems and then then move on to like slightly larger problems and then move on to slightly larger problems. I think that's the way sort of more of a Montessori style approach to education, which we're starting to see diffuse through. Oh, that's a good point. It's funny. Mon Montessori might have been the first agile. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, you, you have also a peer review and you have all the other stuff that you would see. Yeah, Montessori was like agile. Oh, interesting. I never thought about that. Well, the, I was at MIT uh, at the Media Lab, and that's something that Nicholas Negroponte brought from the architecture profession, hands-on learning. And that's what made it so compelling on campus was there was a place that wasn't asking you to show off your CV or what equation you could like fold inside out. Can you build something? Can you build it by tomorrow? Because it was the culture at the time was called demo or die. It's sort of startup-y for education, but I remember that era. If education's that way, then we can evaluate people, just look at their GitHub output rather than say, looking to see if they have a degree from MIT, would that be? But, but even GitHub's a little, little interesting, right? Cause you can like fork something and then get GitHub stars. So I, I find it really interesting how like even that's like a popularity game too, right? Like someone, it's kind of like discovering that everything we think is important, not discovering just my own personal belief. like. Everything you think is important and ascribed to somebody may not have been their idea. All you have to do is scratch away at it and like look closely and you're like, oh, you didn't do that. You copied somebody else kind of thing. And that's how we discover so many hidden figures like women in science or math. You like scratch away the veneer and like, whoa, why were you over here? Oh, I see. So... It's good to understand how things get made by the real people is a, is a strong phrase, but getting to the root of something is really interesting if you have the time. And you're like, whoa, I didn't know that. I knew that, but I didn't know the underlying that. I find that rewarding these days. So now when you're working in, in the venture capital world, venture capitalists are just continually evaluating potential ideas. They're continually evaluating new startups. Yeah, it's an amazing field. My gosh. I just loved it. It was so interesting. And I think you had a very unique role. I don't think that there was someone in that role before or after with the title that you had. Uh, there was a few firms like Google Ventures was doing stuff. And and Irene Au at Kosla is still active. She's like like the leader of that. I was there at the beginning. I tend to be near the beginning of things. I never make it. But I love the venture world. It's so optimistic. I love Silicon Valley. I love your region of the world. I loved how Kleiner Perkins, Eugene Kleiner, was one of the original people from Fairchild Semiconductor who created the whole Silicon Valley genre. The Traitorous Eight, is that what it's called? Yep, it left Shockley. Yeah, so I love how it's connected to that. I traced it all the way back and I was like, wow, this is just really interesting. It's about the belief that you don't have to conform to what you think you should be doing and going off and trying to disrupt the norm. I love that. And I think venture is all about that. Venture is believing that's possible, knowing that it's impossible. It's so, so wonderful that, that thinking. And so when you would evaluate that you thought people, they evaluate the product in one way, do you evaluate the business model using the same 
approach and looking for optimal design and business model? Do you view those as, as completely different processes? Well, I think that like really what I did was just reveal something obvious to everyone, really, that user experience became important because the smartphone made everyone into a computer user. And if everyone's using the computer, they don't like using Eudora 3.2. I don't know how to use this. You know, there was a movement for a while, and I think it's still around, which is to um, stop emphasizing STEM and emphasize STEAM. And I think you... Oh, I was active on that. I was in um, Congress three years advocating for that. It sort of comes back... I was talking to someone who was saying, I work in STEM to STEAM. Do you know what that is? I said, what is that? And I was like, oh, wow. I'm like so disconnected from this world now. Well, I was wondering if you thought about it in a different way now, because back then it was about sort of teaching people, making sure that everybody was aware of, of this art and design piece. But now that you've changed your emphasis to, or at least your explicit emphasis more towards computing, is there a change or is this just, are, are you just sort of, is, has it become so obvious now that we need to think about creativity, that we need to think about design and functionality, that we don't need to talk about it anymore? I, I, I guess I realized how powerful computation really is. And I realized that anyone can explain design well, better than me. What is something that I'm equipped to do? No, oh, I can explain computation. So I wanted to make a way to explain to any business leader what computation is. Because if they don't understand it, they can't digitally transform. So that's how to speak machine. It's, it's my attempt to do that. Now, what do you mean by that? So we like to say, and I've actually been involved in some proposals around, let's take executives and spend a week with them and teach them how to code, right? And then, of course, at the end of the week, they can't do anything, <laughs> right? But is that a useful exercise? What do we mean by teaching? What do we mean by this, knowing what computation is and how it works? Well, that's why I wrote a book, really. I mean, I didn't know how to explain it. It started out like, it's like the nth iteration of rebooting. Like, how do I explain this? And it had a lot more code in the beginning. And it just kind of became more conceptual. I think there are certain concepts in computer science that are hard to understand because they're so powerful. So I focus on what's powerful. And what's powerful is that it, it never gets tired. That's weird. It can loot forever. It is able to encompass large data sets at any scale and at any level of precision. So it can handle infinitely large th issues with infinitesimal accuracy. That is strange. And so like going through these properties helped me understand like how weird it is. And if you meet someone who spends all their time coding and they're kind of like, whoa, it's not surprising because they're living in a world that is extremely powerful. You described when you were young, your initial exposure to computers when you were, I guess it was what, junior high school or, or high school, and you had discovered this new world. I think it, maybe you quoted David Bowie as saying the internet was an alien life form, but I think you probably discovered this alien life form long, long before that. Oh, I think everyone did. They just called it computer program. But I think there's a great quote that you had, which is the world of computation is like a foreign country with its own 
culture problems and language. And I don't think what you meant was that computer scientists and programmers, software engineers, and developers, that they are in their own world. I can't speak for everyone. So in my own view, I think it made me much less empathetic for a long period of my life. Just the power you can wield with writing code and it does everything you tell it to. So I think I can't speak for all people who create in that medium. I'll just say my own self, as I wrote in the book, really kind of colored how I thought of things. And so I had to like break out of believing that's real. I mean, that's not that, it is real. Believing that that can teach you things about how to be with people, because it can't. So I unplugged more is what I'm saying. And I was like, oh, this is like not a good influence on me. It isn't saying like, turn off my screen time, whatever. It's more like, let's say you can conjure up a class of 2 million people. And they're all listening to you, doing everything that Greg LeBlanc says. And you can destroy half of them, refigure them. It's like in Minecraft, basically. That's not normal. It does things to yourself, I think, or did something stuff to me. Well, I mean, because when you think of a design person, we, we think of design people as these really, really empathetic people, right? People who are very sensitive to the user. I mean, if we think about design thinking, it's all, well, I mean, at least the way we teach it, it's like, oh, customer journey mapping. And in business you do, but not in the, the temple of design. Business is about design thinking. It's different. It's customer centricity. It's all the C words, whatever. But the way design is taught, like your microphone is so beautiful. It's like super cool looking, right? That was created not just to be easy to use. It was also created to be quote unquote beautiful, stand out, et cetera, whatever. All these other factors that are not user-centered. They're ego-centered, which you could argue is like user-centered design, but it's, it's different. It's like, I remember this cartoon about the, new, the newest version of the iPhone that had no buttons and, and no... No, no interface at all, right? It's just a brick, right? Then that was the ideal from the aesthetic point of view. And, and that's ugly to someone too. So I just want to caveat that. I think that traditional design is really good at messing with your mind and messing with your ego and messing with your wallet or purse. And it's, it's fascinating. But it's not the same as customer centricity. And I think that's what's so interesting about it and useful about it at certain times in a product's evolution. And in some cases, it's useless. So is it designer centricity or? I think a, a classic design centricity is useless if your product doesn't work. <laughs> so, so when you talk about the temple of design, it, it's really sort of wor worshiping a false god in some way. I mean, it, it, temple design covers so many types of design. So some design, like industrial design, is always user-centric. But if you're like illustration design, it's more like emotion-centric. So I would just say that the word design is, is hard to sort of nail down the same way you can nail down design thinking in a business school or business context. I think it works really well in a business school context because you're trying to combat efficiency as a doctrine. And efficiency is hard, easy, but achieving high quality is the opposite. It's hard. And so the normal method of optimize or compare NPVs or all these other instruments doesn't work as well. So getting customer-centric means this simple idea that you're going to make something someone wants to buy. So you better know what they want. <laughs> I think when you were talking about code and said you don't need to know a whole lot of math to find beauty in it, I mean, step back even one 
level closer to the basics. I think you, you had sort of an ode to the tab button in this book. I don't know if you remember that, which I, I found that to be one of the... Oh my gosh, I had some like weird stuff back then, huh? I remember like, wow, I did some weird stuff, man. I don't think you called it that, but it was actually a, a really nice insight, which was that taking the same information and just organizing it differently makes it accessible. Oh man, I remember that. Wow. I did like, I made like a whole page with like a little word on it. Yeah. Whew. I remember that person. Well, it, it's probably all this stuff is so second nature. It no longer provides you with the wows that, that it may have provided you with when you were articulating them for the first time. Maybe like, yeah, maybe LeBlanc 15 years ago felt this way. Oh yeah, I, I definitely. All the things that, that, that really got me so excited are now kind of obvious to me. So I don't really got to find new stuff. But I think in, when, when uh, you said Negroponte said to you once to be, be a light bulb and not a laser. Yeah, I find it really useful advice. I thought that he really had like rose colored glasses on, but he was good at executing as well. And that's kind of a good combo. And he was very mentory to me when I think I needed it to hear that because I was very laser beamy. And then he'd say, me more of a light bulb. And then if I'm too light bulby, he'd be like, can you like laser beam a bit? <laughs> well, well, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that and how you, over the course of your life, you've kind of managed that, that trade-off. Oh, wow. Crank LeBlanc asking me questions that are, that are hard. And for instance, you're working at a place like where you are now. Do you have to... Do at Everbridge, I, I, at Everbridge, I've got a laser beam all over the place. I mean, you go, but your boss is like, yeah, man, I'm just light bulbing today. I've got like an LED is my light bulb, <laughs> but I'm, I'm laser beaming all the time. <laughs> and uh, well, I, depending upon the, the need, I try to go there. It takes time to switch though. There's a switching cost. I find the way to get there is through vulnerability to kind of make mistakes to get yourself there if you feel safe and safety is never guaranteed. So I think I'm trying to feel safe with you. I don't know you well, but I, I can't get to your question or to you the mode you're looking for if I can't be open, but it's a trust thing. I think trust creates change in a human being. It's like in a classroom, right? If they're like, Greg LeBlanc is a total jerk. Well, I'm not going to listen. Like, oh, Greg LeBlanc. Like, oh, it's, it's interesting. I have a, one of my best friends took his class and really got something out of it. Like, oh, maybe I'll trust Greg LeBlanc, Professor LeBlanc. I think I'll, I think I'll give you some of my time. I think I'll listen. Trust. Usually I say, that if, I say, if you think I'm a jerk, it's just a character that I'm playing. Ooh, that's a good one. Oh, that's a, and that's a good one. But I'm bumped. It means something. You know, at the end of your, your most recent book, you recount a story of vulnerability. I mean, it was a situation where you were running down in, I guess it was Menlo Park and had an accident. Yeah. Have you, have you ever taken a fall, Greg? I had a concussion this past summer. So. Oh, good for you. How, how did it happen? I fell off a horse and landed on my head. Ooh. Any, did you have to, anything break? No, just, you know, my helmet. Oh, I highly recommend breaking something. It's amazing. Really. It's like, ref you know how they talk about refactoring code or even digital transformation? Wow. It's amazing. It's so powerfully humbling. And I'm lucky to have been able to come back, like in this state. But wow. 
did this happen at the end of, were you writing the book already when this happened or did this kind of inspire the writing of the book? I couldn't tell. Oh, I was writing what, some version of that book, uh, but it, yeah, like I, I've been doing it for writing that book for a long time. So man, that was hard, but it was great. I highly recommend it to break something when you're older. Yeah, I'm sure people can sign up for breakage boot camps. We could do that in our executive education. We can break your arm on the day one. That's that's a new that's a new Haas class, right? It's like, I've got to take Professor LeBlanc's break in this class. Yeah, it's, it was incredible. But what was the, tell me, just elaborate on the lessons that you learned from that and how you tied it together with the- um, I think a lot of lessons. I mean, I think the biggest lesson I learned is the power of gratitude power of gratitude to turn misfortune into feelings that can hopefully get you out of the feeling of darkness. Recognizing that some people have the privilege to be able to do that. Some people don't have the privilege to be able to do that. So it makes you even more grateful. Like, wow, I'm really grateful that I, I had the ability to come back that time and I hope that I can have the ability to come back again if I something like that happens again. But I feel lucky that I went through it and whenever I find how thankful I am, it's powerful. I remember like one of my hospital visits, I was leaving the lobby and there's this kid with his dad or something and they're walking in the, the lobby of the hospital. And then you can see like, the child, something's burned kind of thing. But you can just see them kind of walking happily around the lobby. And you think, wow, that's called happy, gratitude, alive. Like, what's your problem, John? In this book, you paint a vision at some point of how at some point everything will be so automatic that the machines will anticipate your every need and serve you up. Happened, right? And, well, I mean, it was very prophetic. I mean, I mean, even in the last chapter you were, and I hadn't read the book at the time, you were talking about APIs and how important they are in, at the last chapter. And, and this is like 2006. Now, of course, that's, you know, all anybody ever talks about. Oh, you're right. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> uh, I forgot. How oh, funny. Well, it's good to talk with you today. I feel like, wow, my that time wasn't, such a loser era for me. Appreciate the, the good cheers here today on a Friday, Professor LeBlanc. Back then, I mean, most CEOs couldn't spell API, I like to say. Your experience in the hospital was one that was very human. And, and part of your work in the book was really about kind of the human and the machine and how humans and machines interact. Yeah. Well, also, I just became awake to how I don't look white. I think that was like a revelation for me. And I was like, wait a second. Oh, I look like this. Well, that explains a whole bunch of things I never understood. And it got me thinking about like difference, inclusion, and all these things. And it was super timely. When I look back at my kind of professional life, it's something I was passionate about, but wasn't sure why or how. And then it really drove me to do all kinds of things when I got able to move around again. I spent time in Detroit, in parts of Detroit where there were incredible, like amazing entrepreneurs, African-American entrepreneurs. And I remember also after 
President Trump was elected, I went to West Virginia and Kentucky because I wanted to meet these people I was seeing on the news, see what, what that was about. And that was incredible too. So I was like, oh, oh wait a second. You, you, you lost all these jobs to the solar energy system. You're upset. The mines closed down. With each minor job, eight jobs are lost tied to it. And the unions had a thing where drug testing was mandatory. So in a high opioid usage area of the country, you remove that control system. You let that run for like eight years. Kind of makes sense. Being close to a lot of professional women, reading what they've gone through the LGBTQ community, community, like what they've been through, just tracking all that. Meanwhile, being sort of fully aware that like when I look back at how lucky I was and my life was changed by a Vietnam war vet, a white man, quote unquote, who thought I was interesting in high school. This is kids, parents have nothing, wants to go to a fancy school. And he went out of his way to, to help me, mentor me. I mean, if he didn't come to my parents' tofu store on Saturday and suggest to my parents that they had to let me not work that summer and take a class at the local college, he didn't have to do that. But he did that. So it's this notion of like how someone looks, behaves, doesn't govern whether they're good or bad per se. If you look at it all very longitudinally, you realize they're really good people, they're really bad people. How they look doesn't say who they are. Well, I think a lot of people are concerned about how how people are is is influenced by technology. Uh, I mean, with with I've had plenty of conversations with other folks about social media and the, how the design of social media is whether it was intended for engagement, it was intended for, I mean, I, I talk a lot about Robinhood. Robinhood was designed to democratize access to equities and it's become kind of like the crack cocaine of trading. And it's a function of the design features. It's a function of the design elements that are intended to, to increase engagement and, and so forth. And you mentioned the imbalance between kind of humans and, and tech. Is, is there something that's in the tech world that, that involves a lack of empathy or is it's just a, a plenty of empathy, just empathy without any kind of social conscience? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're at the center of launching influential people's careers and they're making the decisions that determine whether they'll get a raise or promotion or whatever, you know what I mean? And if they were told that they'll be promoted or get a raise if they do this versus do that, how do they use their judgment in those cases? And I think one worry I've always had, the reason why I left the academy is I, I, I doubted the ability for people who are not in the industrial world to be able to advise people who are in it. Because it's a very different world. Qualitatively, I was describing how the people thing is similar, but it's a different world. And you can teach a class on environmental sustainability objectives or all these things, and they sound really great. And then 
when you're in that job and you're faced to survive, did you get the tools to be able to justify the business case and the promotion case at the same time to sort of do that? Maybe it's as simple as gearing business education to help students understand how to make those arguments within an organization. Because I don't think it's like part of the curriculum per se. How do I convince my boss and my boss's boss and my board and the investors this is a good decision? I think that the need to teach someone in a two-year span or a three-year span, there's so many things to push into their mind that are less practical. I'd argue for more practical skills. Well, you just, you stole my last question, which was if you were drafted and sent back to, to academia to be a university president, I'm interviewing some university presidents, but this, you know, you're drafted by the president and you don't have a choice. You've got to go back and, and run a school. What kind of changes would you make now that you've been sort of out and about in the business world for a decade or so? Definitely digital transformation at scale. Free the faculty to do what they need to do by using the endowment and liquidating it to sort of fund their work. Build incentive system to enable them to profit and also to, I mean, look, what's that guy? The the big business school guy, he's everywhere. He's got a company, the NYU guy. Galloway. Ah, my gosh, that guy. I mean, like, that's a, that's like, I mean, there's a few of them like that who are like taking advantage of the system that created them. I, I worry that a lot of other people aren't able to do a fraction of what he's managed to do. I think it's a bit unfair. So I think it's great that you're doing something like this. I think everyone should be able to do this. What you're doing is technically difficult to do but you mastered it. Every person in that industry should have these skills because it makes them independent. It makes them part of the world. So I would find ways to fund that revolution to occur faster and then would recreate the model of education as more of a membership model, like a subscription model. Lower the cost and price significantly Tap into all the retired professors out there <laughs> because there's a bunch of them out there who like, I mean, their savings have been hit pretty hard. They want to relate to people and kind of bring some of the wisdom back into the system. The problem with retiring people who remember World War II is that they remember when things were really bad. So they'd be an opportunity to inject real empathy at the human level. So we'd want to do that, uh, make parents into investors so they could actually invest in the, in, which they essentially are doing, but they don't know it. Uh, make them explicit investors to kind of change that game as well. Set up sites around the world explicitly to do knowledge transfer, not in the way of disseminating, but actually absorbing because there's so much global knowledge that isn't being used. like. Now, is, I mean, do that. Make sure that summer is preserved in some way for some people who have to think. Give them more space so to create a system where that's fair. It isn't just to the senior people. Anyways, random scatter plot thoughts. Well, that could be the next book. But I have to say, John, you're a horrible salesman of your own books, which is why you need me to <laughs> here to say. Oh, oh, that those books. I don't, I don't sell my books, and that how to seek machine is done terribly, and no one buys the book. 
But I didn't write it for any. I wrote it for myself to understand. And some people hate it. Some people like it. Those are often the best books, the ones that are written for yourself. Cause and there's people online, like at any moment on social media, I'll have someone like post that lots of simplicity. It's like a three-star book. And they'll be, they love saying these things. I'm like, that's, I'm like, great. If you don't like it, that's fine. This is a free world or, so I don't know. I don't, I'm proud of that book because it helped me understand what I couldn't understand. That's all. Most books actually. Well, it's helped me to think about my stacks of books that I have all around me. And you, instead of Marie Kondo, who tells me to throw them all out, you just said, well, organize them. Well, I love how you have the printed laws of simplicity and you have the Kindle how to speak machine. It's quite good. That's a good one. And you're so well lit. So you're clearly, this is a, this is not just a side hustle. This is something else. So that's great. I, I met very few people who are tied to the academy who are, can do things like you're doing. And whenever they reach out, I want to be a part of it because I believe you're freeing knowledge. Well, I'm glad you could. That's sort of the idea. We call it unsiloed because I think that that's where creativity happens and that's where innovation happens. And, and that's where real thinking happens is at the kind of intersection of these almost atrophied and ossified ways of, of thinking. So appreciate you showing up, John. Again, Laws of Simplicity. Also, how to speak machine. I wish I could pick up a picture of it, but it's a really fun read. I enjoyed it. And even if you did it just for yourself, it was great for me to observe your thinking mind at work. Thank you. Talk again soon. All right. Ciao. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Dot com.